What you are about to hear may include disturbing descriptions of sexual or physical abuse, or may contain coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. They called themselves the Students of Light. We used to call them the veggies or the, the vegetarians. The vegetarian mafia. Extremely manipulative. A secret and insular spiritual sect, united by their common search for enlightenment. Forgive yourself for your suppressed anger. Forgive yourself for scattering your consciousness. You felt pure, clear, um, happy. Uh, it's like drugs with no drugs. It, it, it really was. To some, the Students of Light were a divinely inspired spiritual school whose founder, a man named John Hainis, possessed supernatural knowledge and abilities. What I felt coming from that man could not have come from a normal person. Never, ever, ever. I mean, it was obvious to me that he was somebody of a higher being, and he had a, he was able to put forward a lot of light um, and higher energy, which was very uplifting. At the same time, many former students of light have called the group a dangerous cult and have accused its leadership of abuse and even brainwashing. Um, I mean, this fucking guy, he's destroyed all kinds of people's lives. It's terrible. Looking back, you wonder, Frig, how did you ever get duped on this bullshit? Hundreds of students of light once made their home in the core of Toronto's rundown Junction neighborhood. There, they operated a vegetarian restaurant and several other businesses. And it was pretty rough um, in that area. It wasn't somewhere I would walk at night. So I always felt a little bit like the junction I associated with being on sort of the wrong side of the tracks. Despite their presence in the neighborhood over several decades, the average junction resident has never known much about the Students of Light. While some had a vague sense that these businesses were run by the same group, their impression was of a mostly harmless group of hippies and artists who promoted a new age lifestyle one built around vegetarianism and holistic health. As soon as I was old enough to understand, I just associated it with new age stuff. It was like vegetarianism and health and stuff like that. Are they a truly harmless group of spiritual seekers or something much darker? You're listening to Chasing Enlightenment, Episode 1, The Vegetarians. Dundas Street West is the main commercial strip of The Junction, a Toronto neighborhood named for its proximity to a junction of four railway lines. If you walk along Dundas West today, you'll encounter a trendy, rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. You might describe its vibe as shabby chic. Think vegan and gluten-free bakeries, kitschy secondhand stores, candlelit bars, and restaurants with exposed brick walls and locally sourced menus. Over the last couple of decades, the Junction has gained a reputation as a bright, vibrant neighborhood. But longtime residents paint a different picture of what the Junction was like prior to the 2000s, when it was instead known as a rough, run-down area. At the turn of the 20th century, the area that's now the Junction was an independent municipality called the Town of West Toronto. 
It was a bustling commercial district and freight train hub, and home to six hotels that doubled as local bars. These hotels had reputations as dens of iniquity, fueling local alcoholism, gambling, and cockfights. Local sentiments were growing that something needed to be done about the junction's seedy reputation. In 1904, the question of prohibition was put to a vote, with 56% voting in favor of making the area dry. On the final day of legal alcohol sales, 10,000 revelers swarmed the small town, its bars and streets overflowing for one last night of booze-filled reveling. The next morning, all legal sales of alcohol ceased, and many of the town's hotels soon shut down due to lack of business. When the town was absorbed into the city of Toronto in 1909, it was on the condition that prohibition remained in place, unless residents voted to overturn it. And so, the junction remained dry throughout the 20th century. In the 1960s, local manufacturing and railway business shrank drastically, prompting a sharp economic downturn. Occasional movements among local businesses to make the area wet again rose up in the 60s and 70s, but they were quashed by the advocacy of religious and morality groups. The main opponent of lifting prohibition was the West Toronto Interchurch Temperance Federation, whose leader, a man named Bill Temple, was also known as Temperance Bill. Bill once remarked that, quote, booze and slaves corrupts destroys the moral fiber of a community. The junction continued to experience economic decline through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, with industries closing up and few new restaurants or hotels opening. But despite this general decline over several decades, there was one group of people in the junction that was growing and managing to thrive. The group who called themselves the Students of Light. We asked a longtime junction resident, Stephen Sakrob, to describe the neighborhood when he first moved there in the mid-1980s. Here's what he told us about the neighborhood's main occupants at the time. Be warned that Stephen uses some particularly colorful language. Well, there was me. There was crack hose, there was pawn shops, there was a bunch of old uh, Maltese guys that were sort of half, uh, I don't know what the word is, nuts, you know, crazy street people. And there was the, what I called the vegetarian mafia. The vegetarian mafia was Stephen's name for the students of light, who by that time had opened several businesses in the core of the junction. This group of businesses began opening in the 1970s and really began to take off in the 80s. It began with a health food store called The Four Seasons. The group then founded a company called Golden Age Foods, and under this banner, they opened a restaurant which was simply called The Vegetarian Restaurant. This was quickly followed by a facility for manufacturing tofu and other soy products called Soy City Foods, and individual group members also began operating various businesses in the same neighborhood, including a juice bar, a seamstress, a flower shop, a stained glass studio, and several centers of holistic health. The group also purchased various apartments and residential properties in the area. Stephen spent quite a few years living in the junction, at one point living right across the street from the vegetarian restaurant. He occasionally patronized group members' businesses, but he gleaned very little information about the nature of the group itself other than a vague sense that they were an insular, tightly-knit community. And uh, those people, it was like, I don't know, they were like, you could say good morning, they just ignored, like you, it was, they lived in their own world. If you were walking down the sidewalk, they would look the other way. They would divert their eyes, you know, and it, it was that kind of thing. Uh, like I said, I never saw anything I never, uh, I remember once uh, 
going into the holistic something or I don't know if holistic's the right word, some kind of clinic. I went in there thinking it was like a doctor's office or something. And it was like I had broken into the United Nations building, you know, oh, no, you can't be in here. You can, No, 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 no. You know, I think I, so. So I just got that feeling like it was them and us. You know, they were also all very, I don't know, the look of them. The women were incredibly conservative uh, and they were all what pasty. Is that, it? you know, the same uh, sickly kind of. I don't know if unhealthy is the right word, just like gray. There was something like something was drained out of them. They had this dreary look about them, like they were missing something, some kind of nutrient that gave them color. I used to joke uh, that they it appeared to me like they were a cult. Despite giving off impressions of this sort to community members, it's important to note that the group did bring some life and industry into the junction. For one thing, they opened businesses and invested in real estate in a neighborhood that was badly in need of revitalization. For another, the group opened one of the very first vegetarian restaurants in all of Toronto. For all I know, that may have been, I mean, vegetarian, that may have been the center of vegetarianism in the city. In those days, it probably was. Stephen's assessment here doesn't seem too far off. There had been one or two other vegetarian restaurants in Toronto prior to this, but they were quite scarce back then. Through their restaurant and soy foods production, the group's stated aim was to promote a healthy, natural diet in their community. They were featured in local news articles about how a vegetarian diet is not so strange or radical as it was sometimes made out to be back then. The restaurant's recipes frequently appeared in the Toronto Star newspaper, which featured dishes like a tofu tempeh goulash and lemon poppy seed cake. And Soy City Foods distributed its soy and tofu products through Ontario grocery stores and Canadian universities, using innovative machinery and production techniques that the group designed themselves. All of this is quite impressive from our present-day perspective, in which vegetarian restaurants are quite common in a large, multicultural city like Toronto. But besides successes like these, Stephen remembers some group members' business practices as being a bit sketchier. The lady who owned the dress store, alteration store, her son opened up a little uh, bottled water business. I went in there and we arranged, I bought a couple of jugs from him and like, Six months later, I don't drink that much water. You know, single single, one of those five-gallon jugs lasts me forever. Uh, the water started going green. Now, I assume that that's algae. I have no reason to believe it's not. But at the exact same time, he closed up his shop. It was like within days. I made up my mind. I was going to go talk to him and say, hey, what's going on here? Why is the, the thing turning green? He was gone. I'm guessing I figured that a whole bunch of customers had the same issue at the same time, and rather than face it, he ran. Outside of their public-facing businesses, the Students of Light were very private and stayed out of the public eye, despite owning such a large chunk of real estate right in the core of the junction. Stephen speculated about how the character of the neighborhood allowed the group to maintain its privacy. 
this is just a guess to me. I would say the area got really, really run down. The industries, whether it be stockyards or whatever, uh, whatever other um, toxic manufacturing that was going on, that was industries, and they all went away. And eventually, the trickle-down effect with industries closing is shuttering of businesses. And that's basically what happened in the junction. It got run down and neglected, and it was a spot that was big enough that they could, I guess, sort of have, like, you know, be themselves and have their own little world. The only thing that was there, right amongst, you know, the pawn shops and the crack holes. Though the students of light enjoyed privacy when they moved into the neighborhood in the 1970s, this would slowly change over time, beginning especially in the 90s. Gus Kutamanos is a junction business owner who first encountered the group in the mid-90s when he opened a pool hall there called Shocks. Though the neighborhood was still quite run down and under prohibition, rent was inexpensive, and Gus saw an opportunity to inject some life into the area. He didn't realize, though, that he was setting up his business smack in the middle of where the Students of Light had been operating, largely uninterrupted, for the past two decades. The way Gus tells it, they weren't happy with the disturbance. And from the moment that we started our renovations, we were you know, being pestered by the neighbors, whatever, you know, we would have contractors there. And if they would throw a coffee cup on the sidewalk, we'd have a note on the door or we'd have a call into the city. And it was constant and it didn't stop after the renovations either. Then there was constant noise complaints. There was petitions against, uh, against us being able to have a patio. And all these little complaints were from these people that we found out were, were we used to call them the veggies. They were just pestering. They were like little pests. The exact inner workings of the Students of Light were mysterious to Gus, whose main knowledge of the group came from their more public interactions and his observations from afar. We would see them walking around and, you know, there was, just from seeing the people, they, they kind of looked kind of, I don't know how to call it, sleepy. They were, they were odd. They weren't very sociable. They would kind of walk with, you know, not sort of observing what was around them. It was just like, and, it, and early in the mornings, you would see people walking around the neighborhood. And then, I, you know, I learned that they were part of this group. So I think they had meetings early in the morning. You didn't see them very much at nighttime. After opening his pool hall, Gus was determined to develop his business and the neighborhood by pushing for an end to the prohibition that had been in place since 1904. In 1997, he banded with the owners of a few other junction businesses on a campaign to make the junction wet. They saw this as an important part of revitalizing the area, one that would attract new restaurants and encourage more people to spend time there. As Gus recalls it, members of the Students of Light were among those that came out against this campaign. They weren't the only Junction residents opposed to making the area wet, since an anti-wet campaign was once again funded by the West Toronto Interchurch Temperance Federation. But Gus says the Students of Light were among the loudest anti-wet supporters. Our, our goal was to obtain a liquor license, and they seemed to be, from, from what I heard, they were the driving force behind keeping the neighborhood dry. When we 
you know, undertook and started the campaigning to make the area wet. They really undertook this campaign against making the area wet. All the promoting we did, they promoted against. So we made signs, you know, to help improve our neighborhood and invest in our neighborhood. They made signs that alcohol and uh, is is alcohol is against family values and that there'll be drunks and, you know, and lots of uh, violence in the community if we brought alcohol back. And so this small group, but they, 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 they would, and I keep using this word, but they would pester the counselors at the time saying, you know, we don't want alcohol in our neighborhood. We voted you in. It's been dry for a hundred years almost. We want to keep it dry. And if you want to get reelected, you're going to keep it dry for us. They were thinking that you bring the alcohol into this mess that we already have because there was prostitutes and there was, you know, Johns and there was pimps and there was, you know, drug dealers. They were all lurking around the neighborhood at nighttime. So they were thinking that it would make it worse by bringing in alcohol. They're, they're, they were telling people that, you know, if you let alcohol in the neighborhood, your kids are going to get run over by drunk drivers. There'll be people urinating on your lawns. There'll be fights all over the place. You know, look what happened. That's why we went dry in the first place to stop all this bad behavior. And now we want to bring it back. That was their stance. The full story of the 1997 campaign to make the junction wet is complex. And we'll have to brush over many of the details here for the sake of time. But in the end, Gus and his fellow campaigners succeeded in holding a vote during Toronto's 97 municipal election. The result, though, was that only half of the neighborhood became wet. While part of the junction voted to overturn Prohibition, the other part, in which Gus and the Students of Light's businesses were located, saw the dry side win out. For a time, this dry side had won a partial victory, though this eventually changed in 2000 when Gus ran a second campaign, resulting in another vote that finally made the entire junction wet. This 2000 campaign saw much less public opposition, but that doesn't mean that everyone was initially happy about it. Here's another story from Gus. During the second election, the last night before the campaign, I got a helium tank and I printed, uh, you know, about a thousand balloons and it said, vote. The balloons said, vote yes to licensed premises. They were red balloons. And I blew them up the night before the election. And we drove around all night, put balloons all along Dundas Street and all along the side streets. And so people in the morning when they got up, they see these balloons floating reminded them, oh, today's voting day. Let's go vote. That morning, Gus says a member of the Students of Light, who had been one of the loudest anti-wet voices, was among those who woke up and saw the balloons. When she walked from her house all the way to her work, she was sort of skipping along the way and sort of laughing kind of hysterically, you know, those hysterical laughs, and popping the balloons on the way to her work. And then my uncle found her outside. He saw her and he says, hey, what are you doing? Stop doing that. You're not allowed to, you know, that's campaign. St- you're not allowed to pop those balloons. Oh, I'm just having fun. She said something. She said something to him like, you know, I never, you know, went so far as to charge her with, you know, defacing campaign material. But that's what she did. After prohibition was completely lifted in 2000, the dry campaigners predictions that alcohol would send the neighborhood into further decline never materialized. In fact, the opposite happened. The 2000s saw the junction evolve rapidly into the hip neighborhood it is today, with many new businesses opening in the area once it was possible to obtain liquor licenses. In fact, even the Students of Light's vegetarian restaurant eventually came around to the idea of serving liquor. 
They joined many others in the neighborhood who realized that alcohol in the junction wasn't such a scary idea. So who exactly are the Students of Light? This group that was so private and mysterious, yet at the same time took over a large area of the junction for several decades, and even participated in local politics. That's the large question that we'll try to answer over the course of this series. But here's a quick initial rundown of what they're all about. The Students of Light were founded in the early 1970s by John Hainis. At the center of their beliefs and practices is a spiritual force called the Light, which they believe emanates from God and flows through all life in the universe. Despite its spiritual importance, it's difficult to define precisely what the Light is. But here's how Robert Pollock, a professional energy healer and former student of Light, describes the Light in a book titled Navigating by Heart. Quote, Defining it can be imprecise. I find it useful to think of the light as that aspect of the creator which sustains and nurtures life, or the divine consciousness as it exists here on earth. The students of light claim to work with a particularly powerful aspect of the light, called the pure white light of the Christ, which was revealed to humans by Jesus. Though they profess a high regard for Jesus' mystical teachings, they take him to be not the Son of God or God himself, but a powerful spiritual master who revealed much about the light to humanity. Since its founding, the group's core spiritual practice was a technique called aura balancing. During an aura balance, one person, the balancer, swings a crystal pendulum over the body of the balancee, who lies face up on a table. The balancee repeats an invocation. May the pure white light of the Christ fill me, flow through me, protect me, and guide me. Other group members sit in the room observing this process. Together, all in the room try to sense which parts of the balancee's body the light has been blocked from flowing through. These blocks are attributed to some kind of negative energy or emotion or habit to which one is clinging, or to energy from a negative past action. Everyone in the room tries to intuit why the light is being blocked, and they then instruct the balancee to forgive him or herself for whatever is blocking the light. Forgive yourself for your suppressed anger. Forgive yourself for lacking discipline. Forgive yourself for scattering your consciousness. Forgive yourself for your fear of responsibility. Forgiving oneself for whatever is blocking the light is meant to release negative energies and allow the light to flow again. Many people who joined the Students of Light first did so because of the intense spiritual experiences they felt during these aura balances. Here's what one former group member, Cynthia Watson, told us about this. Oh, this felt fantastic. It did. No question. It really did. Yeah, it, it was. I, I will never say otherwise. You felt very like you were on... You felt pure, clear, um, happy. Uh, it's like drugs with no drugs. It, it, it really was. Yeah. I'm not sure why. still don't know. But um, it did. And, I, and everybody who I know was in the group, who's since left, will also agree with me. Besides the light and aura balancing, many of John Hainis's teachings also revolved around the idea that group members had lived numerous past lives, with many now reincarnations of well-known people from the past. John claimed that he himself was the reincarnation of Jesus, and he told many of his followers that they'd been Jesus' disciples in their past lives. Together, they'd all been put back on Earth to continue the mission they began 2,000 years ago. 
a mission to bring the light to all of humanity and to advance the human race into a new spiritual age. Having been founded in Toronto in the early 1970s, the Students of Light were among many new religious movements that emerged in North America in the 60s and 70s. This was a time when many charismatic guru figures were founding their own small religious groups. Because of their unfamiliar belief systems and lifestyles, many groups were accused of being dangerous cults, trying to ensnare and control vulnerable young people. Here's Professor Lauren Dawson, sociologist at the University of Waterloo and an expert on new religious movements. The heyday of new religious movements and of public concern about them, the so-called Great American Cult Scare, which really spread all over the world but was primarily started in the States, was definitely late 70s, early 80s and responding to groups that mainly came into being at the end of the 60s and into the 70s. And, uh, you know, there seemed to be this sudden surge of uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of groups. At the time, it was thought, to be so urgent because it was thought, oh, this is something totally new and an affront to mainstream culture. And if we don't immediately grab hold of it, it's like a disease that's going to take over our youth. Like many religious groups of this period, the Students of Light have themselves been called a secretive cult, with their leader, John Hainis, accused of controlling and subjugating others in service of feeding his ego and lining his own pockets. The story of the Students of Light will unfold over our coming episodes, with much of it told through the eyes of former members who have agreed to share their stories with us. You'll hear about why people chose to join the group in the first place. I think we were all seekers, really wanting to uh, serve, to change, change the world, to make a difference. And about why many eventually became disillusioned and left. You'll also hear about the group's inception by its founder, John Hainis, and how his leadership of the group evolved over the course of several decades. I would say he changed quite a lot from being fairly humble, sort of spiritual leader, to being, well, losing it completely. And um, yeah, I think he turned into a bad man. And you'll hear about some of the darker allegations that former members have leveled against John and the group. Allegations ranging from brainwashing and mind control. And then, of course, we were told not to use our minds, that our minds were destructive. To sexual abuse. He told her that it was for her spiritual growth, right? Extremely manipulative. To the mistreatment of children. Sometimes it was a thing with the parents. Oh, the parents aren't towing the line? We'll take your kid away. Or, oh, the kid's acting up? So yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll teach this family a lesson. Join us as we take a deep dive into Toronto's Students of Light on this six-part season of Chasing Enlightenment. Chasing Enlightenment was written and narrated by Daniel Monroe. Audio production and editing by Carolyn Smiley. Additional research and voiceovers by Robert Monroe. Artwork and web design by Megan Hilario. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find more information about the show and ways to support us at ChasingEnlightenment.net. Contact us at ChasingEnlightenment at gmail.com. For mental health support in Canada, visit wellnesstogether.ca or text 686868 for immediate help. Those seeking to leave abusive relationships can visit EndingViolenceCanada.org.